All right. In this lecture today, <clears throat> we had uh, last week's lecture. Uh, we talked, ended up at the, toward toward the end, uh, dealing with the matter of uh, hermeneutics. Really, it was the subject. It, we talked about interpretation. We talked about how the Roman Catholic Church had. Uh, embraced an allegorical uh, interpretation and then of course set itself out to be the the sole authoritative uh, the sole source of authority for interpretation so the whole lecture of course was not about hermeneutics but we did talk about hermeneutics a good bit but in this second uh, lecture uh, our author takes up the, the, what the title is Bridging the Gap. And let me just say, to make the connection here, even after, and what we're dealing with, what I'm trying to deal with in this series is is the matter, specifically the matter of, of the value and use and understanding of the Old Testament. But of course, much of what we have to say in these early parts is uh, applicable to to the matter of interpretation of all parts, both Old and New Testament. And and here's a statement I want to start out with my lecture with, and that is that even after you settle on a a proper <coughs> hermeneutic. Even after you settle on a biblical hermeneutic, there are, and this, this is what he's going to address in this chapter. Even then, you are still left with some gaps in your ability to interpret specifically the Old Testament, but really all of the Bible. Okay. There's, he discusses in this chapter, some of the gaps that exist for us as we seek to meet the challenge of properly interpreting the Old Testament. And I'll give you some of those. Uh, he talks about the gap in time. There's a gap between us where we are in time and when these things were written, the, the, the span of time itself uh, creates uh, a gap that must be bridged. It's not an insurmountable gap. We're not saying that. But it, but it does need to be considered by us that there is a, there is this span. There is this gigantic span of time between ourselves and when these scriptures were written. And so that, that is one of the gaps that, that he talks about, uh, that Goldsworthy talks about in his book, of, uh, of that, that presents a challenge or at least a consideration for us. In interpreting the Old Testament. Second thing he mentions, there is the gap in culture and geography. Uh, Luke, in his message this morning, was a classic illustration of, of, of a, a right and biblical attempt to help us bridge that gap because he started out by saying let me let me set before you the terrain here of this scene that he later preached from that context uh, we 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 open up the old testament really anywhere in the bible but we're specifically focusing on the old testament when we open up that old testament we start to read we, we need somehow to transport ourselves from our own culture and geography 
and see the culture and geography of the place and time in which it was written. This is a gap, and it must be spanned. And you dare not just pick up, and in fact, most, I guess, I guess most good preachers, hopefully all studious Christians have come to realize that many times in the scriptures, there's a great message. There's a great lesson. There's, there's much to be gleaned just from understanding the geography of a text. And, uh, that you hear, hopefully you hear preachers refer to those things in their messages. But he talks, he talks about, Goldsworthy talks about, this is one of the gaps that has to be bridged. The, the gap between our culture and our geography. The culture, for example. Now there's a big one. There's a big gap. I mean, there is a huge gap between the culture of America today and Israel today. <laughs> I mean, it's, even now and certainly between modern Americans and ancient Israelites, the huge cultural gap there. And again, not to say that this is an insurmountable thing. It's just to say that it is a thing and it must be considered when one goes to look into the Old Testament. Uh, and then... There is a there is a huge gap Goldsworthy talks a little bit about in the nature of the content of the Old Testament, the nature of the content. And he says a good bit about this, and I have and will continue to say much about it. The content of the Old Testament is first and foremost theological. It's not it's not a study in world economies. It's not a study in politics. It's not a study in military. It's not a study in international relations. It's not a study in ethics. This book, this Bible, is preeminently theological. The theme is God. The purpose is God's self-revelation. So when you pick up this Old Testament, you're not looking at something like any other book you pick up. Those authors had other objectives, other purposes in mind. This book has only one, theology. So if you don't recognize this gap in your thinking, you know, you're picking it up as literature picking it up as just a moral guide or you're picking it up as whatever other purposes you can think of, then there's going to be a gap between you and this Old Testament you're not going to understand because it's theological in nature. So I think that was a very significant point he made as to the, the, the this gap because of the nature of the content of the Old Testament. But then... There is, he mentions, and I, I, I think it's in, in, uh, important, he mentions there's a difference in, now he doesn't use this word, this is my word, okay? But I'm summarizing his content, and I like to, to bring things down when I can to simple words. There's a difference in style. There's a difference in style. And I'm not talking about the difference between the language of the the, the King's English, the King James Version versus modern lingo. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about that there is a difference in the style in which the Old Testament was written. The very writing style itself is different. Now, we had some marvelous conversation, uh, Trace and I, with... Uh, with the children yesterday and but one of the things that, that needs to be and I hope you learn this I, this is why I'm doing all this I hope you I hope you get a, your handle on this 
there's different ways of expressing. It's not just different words. You can take the same words and arrange them differently. And some languages do that. You know that. Uh, in fact, even in English, you can take a sentence. Our normal structure, is it not? Our normal structure, sentence structure, is subject, verb, and then whatever, you know, uh, uh, adjective, phrases, uh, prepositional phrases. We have this structure, but it's typically, we kind of, we kind of are settled on a subject verb structure. But, but a sentence, even in English, you can express the same thoughts and you'll have, you'll have all these nouns and modifiers and all this, and then hung out here on the end of the sentence is the verb. Boom. Yeah. You don't really get where it's going. You get all this material, and then boom, here out is the verb. There is a difference in style. Okay? Now, I said all that. That all applies to English. Stretch your uh, vision a little bit further and realize that Hebrew structure is altogether different. And in fact, within Hebrew, there's different structures. So, I'm just trying to get, help you get your head around the fact that when you're reading the Old Testament, in its original, there was a huge gap between their style and ours. Huge gap. And, and you can miss things if, if you fail to recognize that gap. Uh, the Geneva Bible. Did I bring it? I bring my Geneva Bible. I was really just going to make reference to it, but if you have a Geneva Bible, you could look, for example, at uh, 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 Genesis, Genesis chapter one. And you'll see in the Geneva Bible as it was translated in uh, 1560, put out in 1560, even in that English translation, they more accurately captured the sentence structure and order in the Hebrew. They were trying to bridge this gap. Or at least express the fact that there is a gap between how the Hebrew mind processed sentences versus how we process sentences. Now again, again, we're not saying this is an insurmountable gap. We're saying it must be bridged. That if we're to be accurate in interpretation, if we're going to interpret properly, we need to consider, here's one of the things we need to consider, that there was a significant difference in style in, in the Hebrew uh, Bible. Now, when I say style, I, I have included three things that, that will affect that style, the change, the difference there. There was history. Uh, there, there is in writing style. I'm, I'm sorry, I expressed it wrong. There is in, when we talk about style of writing, is there is in, in history, uh, uh, sorry, in style, there's history. And when you read the Old Testament, there are places where you are simply reading pure history. This event happened on this day in this place, and these people were there. Okay, that's pure history. Stop. Then there's historical narrative. The Old Testament uses that. It uses historical narrative. And then, of course, we have, what else? Poetry. You have poetry in the Old Testament. So, and I, I just named these just to bring to the forefront this realization you need to realize 
when you go to interpret the Old Testament, you need to recognize the differing literary styles that are there. You can't look at everything and assume it is the same style. If you don't recognize its style, and I shared recently, did I not? I, I shared with you all that a certain man called me and he asked me about uh, how do I interpret that the circle of the earth in, I think it's Isaiah 40, isn't it? The circle of the earth. Well, there's no challenge at all if you recognize the style there, what the type of writing that this this is about. This is not naming some physical object that is physically laying around the earth somewhere. This is this is an expression. This is Hebrew expression, and so. Without recognizing the style, you're going to be chasing rabbits with all kind of crazy interpretations. All right, uh, you got to you've got to realize there's this gap in style, and then not not only. And I did mention this. Those of you that are thoroughly studied and well known, please, please in you know bear with the rest of us and just in, indulge me to allow. For those of us that don't know as much, I wanted to show you <clears throat> there is there is even in English, even in English, that, that when we're talking about this thing of style, the Old Testament and the New Testament, but especially the Old Testament, were written in a style that to us as English-speaking Americans in this day, 2022, we would find awkward, even cumbersome, if we don't take the trouble to study and know it right. Uh, if you will, Taz, pass these around. I took a, I, I copied a page. This is just a page out of the Washburn College Bible. Okay, uh, I think Brother John has one of these. I, I don't know if some of uh, uh, the rest of you do. Uh, this was done by Oxford University Press. It's very, very interesting history of how this particular Bible came to be. The Washburn, the Washburn uh, Bible. Uh, I won't, I won't trouble you with the history. It had a, it had a quite a checkered and interesting history behind it. But, but the purpose of it, the reason this Bible was done, <clears throat> let me give it to you in their own words. The difference between this Bible and its predecessors is its typographic Format a visual reorganization of the text rather than changes in the words and syntax. They they wanted to put they wanted to create visually with the very structure of the sentences uh, to make it different from the King James. Where the King James just runs on line after line after line after line, and where there's a colon or there's a break in thought, the King James does not does not observe that, doesn't point that out to you by the way it, the type is arranged. The Washburn Bible, however, moves these lines and phrases and so forth so as to visually convey what's being said in the text. Here's just an example. <clears throat> Job, this is Job 14, uh, Job uh, 14, let's say, uh, look at verse 18, verse Job 14, 18. Now this is going to read exactly as it reads in your King James Bible, as far as the words. 
But you won't find this structure in your kingdom of Bible. Listen. And surely the mountain falling cometh to naught. And the rock is removed out of his place. You see how they structured the sentences so as to uh, help you carry these thoughts in the way that they were intended. The waters wear the stones. Thou washest away the things which grow out of the dust of the earth and thou destroyest the hope of man. So by moving these lines, instead of just these words all running through one verse in one setting, they restructured it. Okay, you see, do you understand what I'm saying? I feel like I'm not saying exactly, but you would just have to read the Washburn Bible to understand. My point of, the reason I'm pointing this out to you, the reason I'm bringing this out to you, is to show you that even in our own language, even in English, you can take the exact same words and make ideas either less understandable or more understandable just simply by how you structure the writing of them. Okay? Now, that's just a small thought. Expand that thought and realize that when you're, when you're moving from Hebrew to English, you've really moved a great distance in trying to understand. Because their method of expression, and you do pick that up, by the way, even in the English translation, there are places that you pick up the fact that the whole thought structure is not that that is most common to us. It's a totally different thought structure. This is all under what I'm trying to talk to you about, a difference in style. Style. There's a gap. And if we don't recognize that gap, we're going to make serious interpretation errors. There's a huge gap between the difference in style of, of, of the languages. Now, all of these gaps that I've just talked about must also be viewed maintaining what he called, and I'm quoting him, the organic unity of the whole. Which is, what did we say in the very first lecture? What is the organic unity of the whole? What is the glue that holds the whole thing together? No matter what style, no matter what form, no matter what culture, what is the glue that holds the whole thing together? Redemptive history. The whole Old Testament is a, is a history of redemption, God's self disclosure. That traverses right across the lines of every writing style, of every type, of everything in it. It's this unity, the organic unity that, that Goldsworthy talked about is the redemptive history. He talks about Uh, let me find it. Uh, at the bottom of page 28, he says, If we are to avoid flights of fancy in interpretation, we need some understanding of what governs the right approach to the meaning of the Bible. Most of us assume that there is some very basic unity to the whole Bible and to its message. It is more than a collection of holy books in that it contains a single story of salvation. If there is such a unifying theme throughout the Bible, then the, stru then the structure of the biblical message, the structure of the biblical message, the overall relationship of each part to the whole, 
becomes the prime importance for interpretation. And I'm telling you that that overall structure, that central structure is this. It is the history of redemption. And that's why this Bible, the books of this Bible, this is how they differ from all of man's productions. It has in every book and in every page, right across the ages and time and time and distance of, of space, of, of uh, uh, location, it carries the consistent theme. It's a self-disclosure. It is about redemptive history. Just knowing the problem, that is the problem of these gaps, just knowing that goes a long way to solving it. Because ignoring these things leads inevitably to wild and fallacious interpretations. But the real solution let me complete the sentence I started. Just knowing the problems goes a long way to solving it. But the real solution is work. Study. The real solution to bridging these gaps is study. And so many people don't want to do that. <laughs> and that's why so many for in our generation, my, my wife and I, in our generation, one of the main methods used in, say, Sunday school or any other women's groups or anything is to take a text of scripture and then commence with what we call a pooling of ignorance. We're just going to go around the table and everybody's going to say, well, to me, it says blah, blah, blah. And the next one, well, to me, I see blah, blah, blah. And at the end of the day, all we've done is pool our own ignorance. We, we don't really have any knowledge in the text at all. Because we didn't put into it the work necessary to come to bridge these gaps and come to a right interpretation. Three, let me give you three very basic principles to aid you in the study of the Old Testament. And these three principles, what they are intended to do is to take into account these gaps. Right? In other words, this will go some ways. I'm not saying it's exhaustive or complete. I'm just saying this will go some distance in bridging these gaps. The first is to study the scripture as literature. Now, it is literature. I have already said, and I make the point, I, re I will reemphasize the fact that it is not just literature. It is theology. But it is theology written in some places as literature. On page 32 of Goldsworthy's book, he says this, The Old Testament is a collection of 39 books written by a variety of authors over a period of maybe a thousand years or more Nearly all of the Old Testament was written in Hebrew. Some parts were written in Aramaic. The earlier parts go back to the time of Moses, which is probably the 13th century B.C., while the latest sections were written before the Greek period of the 4th century. So then he says it has been customary to divide the individual books of the Old Testament in four groups, law, history, prophecy, and poetry. Now that would be, that's all, all of that is all under the, the notion of looking at the Old Testament as literature. Because even in human literature, we have law, history, 
prophecy, poetry. We have these different things. And he says this has this has some value. But the classifications are very broad and it is helpful to be a little more specific about the types of the Bible. Different literary forms or types function in different ways and some appreciation of the various forms in Hebrew literature is essential if we are to avoid misinterpretation of the author's intentions. And that's what I've been saying to you. That's what I've been saying to you. To ignore this will invariably land you into misinterpretations. We must not, Goldsworthy says, we must not expect the Hebrew authors to be bound by the same rules of literary expression to which we are accustomed. The Bible is not a bound volume of 20th century works. It's an ancient collection using an ancient language to express forms which, thought forms which frequently differ from our own. Now, I'm simply putting this to you because if we miss this, <laughs> You're going to misinterpret a lot of scripture. We heard an example this week. We were talking with a gentleman who was a primitive Baptist, but not primitive Baptist like down here. Primitive Baptist like up in the mountains where my wife is from. And he, they believe that they don't believe in a literal hell. They believe that hell is on earth and that you make your own hell. In other words, if you do bad things, your bad things are going to happen to you. And so that's your hell. There is no literal hell. And to proof text for that, he read the word, he read, he said, doesn't the scripture say, didn't the, didn't the poet say, the, the, the uh, psalmist say, if I make my bed in hell, thou art thou. So he said, wherever hell is, I mean, Jesus is there too. So that doesn't, that can't be the hell that you believe in talking to me. Can't be the hell you believe in. Because wherever, I mean, Jesus is there. Isn't that what the scripture says? What's wrong with that? It, it, it fails to take the time to study to realize the word is Sheol. And it's really is the Greek the Hebrew word for the grave. It's not talking about the burning hell, everlasting fires. It's talking about the grave. But if you don't take the time to to bridge that gap, if you don't study to bridge that gap, then you can come up with a doctrine that is clearly not biblical. That there is no literal hell. You see? So I'm just giving you an example. Uh, it is, it is, it, it is literature. Now, I won't take the time to read it. You read it for yourself. That's why I bought with books. But, uh, Goldsworthy goes on here to describe on page 34 different times historical narratives. Law, statutes, prophetic oracles, genealogies, songs of many kinds, parables, fables, riddles, uh, proverbial uh, sayings. Uh, I mean, so many different kinds of literature in the Bible. You have to bridge this gap and realize that there are all these different things. And... Uh, There's a wonderful variety in it all. So, a variety of literature. So, number one, uh, I would set for you as far as basic principles is to look at the scripture as literature. Number two, look at it as history. On top of page 35, we cannot hope to understand the way the Old Testament functions 
as part of the Bible without some grasp of the whole sweep of Old Testament history. Now, I just read that, and there are simple words. And I, and I can well imagine that as I read it, my wife, I can read her mind. We've been married so long. I don't even have to look at her. I can close my eyes and I know everything. No, not really. I wish I could. Well, maybe I don't. But anyway, I know what she'd think when I, when I, John Souls, I read these words, a grasp of the whole sweep of Old Testament history. And she's laughing up her cup and saying, you ain't got a prayer of that, pal. And she's absolutely right. But it is needful. And it is important. So what I've got that she doesn't have, because she has it on her head, I know that there are lots of companies that make time charts of biblical history. And with this wonderful little tool, I can unfold the whole chronology of the whole Bible and everybody that's in it, and that would extend all the way over there to that wall. This is just one. There's a lot of different companies and people that have done this. Okay, Here's the chronology. So when I turn to a text, in her mind, she's all, she sees all this chart, and everything's in place. I have to turn to it. But hey, I've got a book. I can find it. I can find out exactly where I am all the timeline and all the information that's needed. This is a cheat. This is a cheater. Okay. <laughs> this is in place of good education. This is a this is a cheating tool for those of us that didn't get a good education. But look, better to have a cheating tool than to ignore the fact that you need a chronological understanding of the history before you start to interpret a text. I noticed in the message this morning, Luke talking about certain spots of geography. He went backward and said, on this same spot back before, it was Abraham or whoever, there was some event. If you would go forward from this spot, you would see these people and what happened here. What he's doing is tying the whole timeline together. This is what's important in studying Old Testament. It's important to, to recognize and look at the history. Okay? The whole history must be given. Now look, believe it or not, it's a marvelous thing. There's a chart on page 36. And it's a chart. <laughs> now, that, that little chart on that page is this whole book of, while this is thoroughly detailed, okay, Names, locations, people, events. This is thoroughly detailed timeline and history. Uh, Goldsworthy summarizes, condenses the whole thing down this little simple chart. Which you might say, well, that's a ridiculous oversimplification. Not really. There, there is usefulness in seeing a grand scope of time in a small picture. And listen, Listen to, I'm going to read it for you just because I, I want you to hear. Page 38. I'm going to give you, now this is shocking to me and amazing at the same time. In one and three quarter pages, page 38 and most of page 39, he, he spans the entire history of the Old Testament. In one and three quarter pages. Listen to this. We are thus dealing with a history which begins with the creation of the universe, the world, and man. The history then focuses on man, Adam, 
his relationship with God. After being ejected from paradise in Eden because of his rebellion against his creator, man's history is one of increasing and widespread sinfulness. This leads to the destruction through the flood to the preservation of one family. From this family of Noah, the lineage of man is shown to divide among the nations of the world. Through all through, although uh, the focus is on the line of Shem leading to Abraham. Then now, so he's got us all the way from creation to Abraham in one paragraph. Abraham called by God to leave Mesopotamia, go to Canaan, where he received certain promises concerning his descendants. This promise later passed on to his son Isaac. Isaac's son Jacob, eventually the sons of Jacob, migrated to Egypt and in time became a large nation. When this people was subjected to a cruel slavery by the Egyptians, God sent Moses to lead them into the land of Canaan when he promised to give Abraham's descendants. This process was long and involved and included the making of a covenant at Mount Sinai in which this nation of Israel was bound to God as his people with all that that implied. So now he's moved us all the way from Abraham, all the way down <laughs> to the descendants of Abraham to the covenant at Mount Sinai. The disposition, dispossession of the inhabitants of Canaan, the settlement in the land led to the development of the need for some form of government or administration of covenant. After a false start under King Saul, Israel received a greater leader in the person of David. He united the tribes, established capital cities, secured the borders, set up a proper administration. Unfortunately, David's successor Solomon became too ambitious and unwise policies led to eventual dissatisfaction. When his son came to the throne, there was a rebellion and the ten tribes of the north seceded to become the king of Israel while the dynasty of David continued to rule over the southern kingdom of Judah. Now he's moved us all the way through to the history of the dividing of the tribes of Israel. The secession led to a general decline in both north and south, although the prophets continued to call the people back faithless to the covenant God. The north finally suffered defeat at the hands of the Syrians in 722 B.C. and ceased to be an independent state. More than a century later, the might of Babylon was aimed at the south with the destruction of Jerusalem in 586 B.C. and the deportation of most of the people. Judah was as a political entity ceased to be. Wow, he has really traversed a lot of history there. Then he says the exile in Babylon came to an end for, for the Jews when Cyrus the Persian overcame the power of Babylon and allowed captive peoples to return home in 538 B.C. Many of the Jews chose to remain in Babylon for life. had been quite kind to them. But those who returned had a real struggle to reconstruct the state of Judah. Eventually, with Persian cooperation, some stability was reached. Jerusalem temple was reconstructed. But the glory of the golden age of David and Solomon never returned to the Old Testament period comes to an end with a whimper rather than a bang. Now he's brought us all the way to the end of the Old Testament. And then he says some three and a half centuries intervened between the two Testaments. Now, uh, <clears throat> for some of you that is mundane. For me, that's quite impressive. To be able to traverse all of that history really in a short span. I mean, I slowed down, stopped a couple places. I don't know, you could probably read those two pages in what, I don't know, four minutes maybe. And you've traversed all of that history. Now, what has that got to do with my It's Here it is. If I turn to a passage of scripture in the Old Testament, one chapter in one book, I need to understand where that is in this whole thing. Where that is in this time frame. Because that's going to affect my interpretation of it. You're going to have to do your homework. You're going to have to study. You're going to have to put out the effort. You're going to have to work. And if you didn't have a great education, as I did not, there are tools to help you. 
But at least take the time, take the trouble, put in the effort, and find out where you are. Okay? So studying the Old Testament as history and in its historical context. That's important. And then, of course, studying it as theology. Studying it as theology. At the bottom of page 42, he opens a subject that in the next lecture he's going to enlarge. So we'll take it up next week. But listen what he says about studying the Old Testament as theology. Theology means the knowledge of God as God himself reveals it. We have seen that biblical theology consists of the study of the revelation of God as he acts in this world, in the history of men. The most important concern in the study of the Bible is the revelation of God. What is God saying to us in the record of his acts? What did God do in entering in a special way into the history of mankind? We've already raised the question of the unity of the Bible. We are here asserting that the aspect which above all else creates the Bible's unity is its theology. It is one God who acts and speaks throughout the history in the Bible. Furthermore, God acts and speaks with a unity of purpose. God's message to us is one unified discourse, not a series of of isolated and disconnected messages. And they are all designed, I might add, these are my words, all of them are designed for that purpose of his self-disclosure. Always have that in your mind when you're looking at any part of the Bible, but certainly the Old Testament. But now, I wanted to give you, before I close, and I'll just, just read it to you. He sets out, when we go back, go back one notch, and let's talk again about studying the Bible as history. There's two general comments he makes about studying the Bible as history, and they are important. First is what it is not what it is not on page 40. At first sight, the history contained in the Old Testament may seem to be that of a fairly insignificant nation which spent most of its time in political sub subjection to whatever greater power had the ascendancy, ascendancy in the Middle East. Unfortunately, this is often the impression gained from a concentration on the details of the Old Testament history. Now the study of detail is certainly important, but it is a human weakness to fail to see the wood for the trees. Too much initial detail, too much initial concentration on the details of Israel's history may obscure important relationships and the overall pattern in the events. And I wrote out beside that paragraph in my book, that's what happened to me. To me. As I was growing up, and as I was growing in young adulthood, I was led by an example that only ever focused on the intricacies of the details and never gave me the big picture. And that is a danger. Do not read the Old Testament. This is what Old Testament history is not. It is not meant 
to be an intricate detail that ignores. Because listen to the next paragraph, he puts it well. It is essential to remember one of the cardinal points of history writing that no history is ever the mere record of the succession of details or events. The historian selectively writes selectively according to his purpose. Of course, he cannot completely isolate one aspect of human life from all others, but he can direct his attention to one or other aspect so that others fall more or less out of view. And he's saying this is what the this is even when you're studying the Bible, Bible history does this as well. It's written with a purpose. It's not just a record of a sequence of events. It's going somewhere, we would say in our life. Where is it going? God's self-disclosure. The history of redemption. It has a purpose. Even the writers of history in the Old Testament. That history is not there to satisfy historical curiosity. It's there as part of the narrative to reveal God's redemption. It has a purpose. So, you cannot read history without that, knowing that. And then a second general statement, what Old Testament history is. Insofar as the Old Testament is history, it is a theological history. Rather than a religious history, it's God's record of God's own dealings with the world and with men. He goes down and he says the history of the Bible is purposive. The purpose which governs the events is God's purpose. <laughs> the biblical historians relate events not as events in themselves, but as the deed of God or as the deeds of men which are to be judged according to the character of God. It is God who calls Abraham from earth, who brings Israel out of Egypt, who raises up Cyrus to free Israel from Babylon, who judges human actions according to whether they're good or bad in his sight. It is this purposive element in biblical history which makes the Bible unique, giving it its distinctive dimension. The Bible is, what is Old Testament history? It is theological. It is purposeful. It is revealing God. And that's its purpose. So, three recommended principles when looking at the scripture, the Old Testament. Look at it as literature. Understand the differing types of literature. Look at it as history. But understand the purpose of that history. Look at it as theology, and there you have the underlying current that carries the whole message from Genesis through the end of the book of Malachi, the redemptive history. These are gaps. These things I've talked about. These are gaps which are natural to us. We have them. We have to overcome them. We have to bridge them. And they won't bridge themselves. You won't bridge these gaps by meditating under a tree and, you know, like a Buddhist monk sitting out on a mountain somewhere in deep meditation. You bridge these gaps with study. Study. Okay? I hope that I'm making some point <laughs> to you. I hope that you're getting the points that I'm trying to make. All right. That is the lecture. If you have any questions, just direct them to Brother John or my wife or someone. I don't know that I can answer questions. <laughs> no, I, I know this is elementary for some of you. It must be painful almost. But uh, for those of us that haven't had the advantage of a great education, I hope that these things can be helpful to you.
Do we have any comments or any conversation? I hope I'm not guilty of chargeable with the crime of what Mr. Goldsworthy calls getting lost in the woods not seeing the woods the trees. But I can't pass over this circumstance and it goes to the fact that even the best of writers we know can unwittingly undermine their own arguments. In this case, he's making the argument that has been thus far in the study of the organic unity of the history, especially as it relates to the Old Testament. But on page 25, he, he writes these three sentences, which are somewhat interesting. The God of Israel is our God, and his character is unchanging. The faithful people of Israel, the, quote, saints, unquote, of the Old Testament, are true saints, even though they do not know Christ. Yeah. We tend to show the question of how they were saved without knowing Christ. And simply ask instead how they illustrate the life of faith. Right. I understand the point primary point in trying to make, but I think the language they chose to use there yeah. does tend to undermine yeah. his, his argument for that organic yeah. and would cause confusion, I think, in some reading that. I don't know how much that's an um, unrecognized influence of dispensationalism on his own theology or, or yeah. it's just inelegant. Right. I, I picked up on that and wondered about that as well. I, I eventually satisfied my mind that he was speaking, he was putting voice to the other side, what they were saying, that they were saying. I almost wished it had been in quotes so that it, it seemed to me he was saying, this is what they say. They say that they didn't know Christ. But then he goes on to say, but we know. <laughs> and that, and that they just use these things to illustrate life, uh, a good life. But, you know, I, th I think the wording there was, was very poor. I, I agree with that. I picked up on that. And if you notice, I didn't quote that section. <laughs> but I, it's because I think there's a good bit of ambiguity in that. I'm not real sure what he was saying. I'm hoping I'm right, but. This is an interesting, uh, uh, this, this Washburn Bible, by the way, and I do use this in my studies sometimes. Uh, there was a lot, a lot, a lot of money and a lot of time put into the production of this Bible. I looked to see, just out of curiosity, I, I looked on Amazon and eBay and different places, they are available still to buy. They were only ever published to my knowledge one time. They are still available to buy. I found them from anywhere from a, a bad, bad condition at somewhere around $40 up to a really good one like this in this original case. Most of them sell. That thing's gold gilded, by the way. Incredibly well bound. Beautifully embossed. Uh, most of these are, are in the neighborhood of $300. Uh, I wrote in the front of this one that I purchased this one at a yard sale for $2. How it wound up in the yard sale in Calhoun County, I have no idea. But I found it in the yard sale for $2. Uh, but the Washburn Project, this was a project, by the way, it was a project that got started and then floundered and fell on its face and was abandoned completely until a woman, a woman, 
picked it up and said, this needs to be done, and I'm going to see to it that it is. And so a woman named Olive White Garvey agreed to become the underwriter with the condition that the earnings from the sales would be used for a permanent display and tribute to, to Bradbury Thompson and, and the Washburn Bible. So there was a display made at the college there, uh, which did it in order. Oxford University Press published this. And, uh, you can read more of the history for yourself. It took a long time to do it. And it was very, very well done. But again, just so you don't get lost in the woods we're talking about, my only reason for bringing that up was just to show you how that style, even just style of printing, can affect our ability to do right interpretation. And certainly the difference between Hebrew uh, thinking and our thinking style makes a significant difference in interpretation. And I, I just, I think it's appalling. Nobody knows it better than I do and my wife does. Uh, how whole denominations of people can ignore the study that's needed and running strictly on their feelings and their impressions. They interpret the Bible. What a wretched thing.